Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. I'm here with Professor Deepak Lal, who is one of the world's leading development economists and a man who's had a, a quite extraordinary life, really. You've, you've worked in India, Australia, California, the Kenya, the Philippines, in, you know, pretty much, uh, pretty much oh, everywhere. Well, you know, with the, the the UN, the OECD, Cato Institute, uh, you were chairman of the Mont Pelerin Society. In short, when it comes to sort of working out what makes people wealthy and happy, uh, there are few people with as much experience or, or expertise. I think it's probably fair to say. But I wanted to start um, in a sort of rather different place. Um, I was reading your biography, and you mentioned that. Uh, after taking the Indian civil service exams and coming in the top fifteen out of twenty thousand people, you were um, you you were sort of trained up for for the job of a, of a district officer, which in those days involved compulsory horse riding on the curriculum. Yes, and I refused. <laughs> I, I told you know every morning first you had, well, had to get up at six, and these there were these fierce sergeant majors, I suppose, who were supposed to you know make you should make sure you didn't fall off your horse and I I don't get on well with horses so I just slept with all these other people and then I was called hold up before the what are they called deputy director or something and he said why and I said no I, I, I don't like horses so I said that you, you won't be able to join the service so I said I told him well in which case I think I'll have to talk to my member of parliament and say I've just been chucked out of the front service because I refuse to partake in an imperialist activity, I horse riding. So you back down, I never rode a horse there. But I, I like that story because it speaks to two sort of th- themes of, of your work. One is just there's the sort of level of development that, you know, when you started off, the countries you were working in were poor on a sort of on a level that we find very hard to understand today. And the other, of course, is 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 the state and the you know yes. the uh, the sort of central the vast central bureaucracy. And you you talk about your career as sort of um, you, you sort of started out as a, as, a, as a Fabian who was going to save India through the through the power of central planning, and then you and then gradually sort of see well, the, the most light. Trom- the, the, the most the turning point. And people keep asking me this was I went and worked for one year in the planning commission. And I was the advisor to the minister, and the first thing he asked me to do was out there. He said, "Oh, you, you, you obviously speak English very well. Now here's a third five-year plan, and I'd like you to edit it." 
at that bit, I had to go around with all these people who had written their bits and pieces. It became apparent to me. First, they, they didn't like the English being. The one chap was Sikh, and he got very hot under the collar when I changed his rather wretched English. Anyway, but the most important thing is that gave me an idea how these things were put together. It was quite clear. They had no basis. basis. It's just out of the air, taking numbers, plucking numbers. And there was a huge contretemps between two members of the commission. And that was all about what the next five-year growth rate should be. No one had any idea. And they were arguing whether it should be 3 or 3.5%. 3 it's absolutely absurd. So that convinced me this was just mad. And the point is, they also had this terrible attitude of business and businessmen. And this is also the parent, Indira Gandhi. In fact, we're still living the effects of this. She had this left, left turn. She joined with the communists to do in her... Congress Party stalwarts, and then she nationalized the banks, and that's still a problem with India. They're still suffering the consequences of this, and many other things. This whole socialist stuff was really hurt doing, and that was a disaster. And I used to argue against it, and people would say, but you don't know how bad business went out. I said, business might be bad, but it's their money, and now you're taking all this money and throwing it into the bin. No, no effect. So it really took to 1991 when the effects of the socialist experiment were quite clear that you're not, this is not working. And then Manmohan Singh, he then started liberalization and that has uh, changed things. So now it's, well, it's, it's, it's slowly moving out of that and now hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll rise again. Um, but you, I mean, were you were you were you an influence on on Singh at all? Because you know you because you you published this this you know basically a demolition of development yeah. economics, saying you know there well, are that, the, the orthodoxies are. So yeah. just to explain to the readers, I, the, I like um, to believe that it was quite influential because when I go, I mean the only thing people have read of mine when I go around the world, you know, it's been translated. God knows how many times. I'll tell you the best the best story about this. This was at when I was in China. And I, I used to go to Peking University, so, you know, even in China, you get 150 people in your lecture hall. This time I went, this is after they brought out the China, a pirated Chinese edition of this book. I suddenly arrived there, the people crawling out of the windows, etc., etc., asked my friend, Justin Lin, I said, what's going on? He said, oh, your book has just been published, as a, it's a bestseller. So I said, can I get a copy? He said, no, it's completely sold out. So then I arrived in Shanghai with the, with the publisher, and China had just signed the copyright agreement that day. So when I rang this chap up, he thought I come to especially just just to collect my royalties. So I said, no, no, nothing at all. I just like to get some copies of this. So he said, oh, so next week he said it's all run out. I got five or ten copies left. So next morning in my hotel, I slip packages, ribbons, and all these things. That's all. So, so I think it did make a difference to the because you know in some sense, what it did was it it caused a mood. People were very unhappy with what what was going on, and particularly in developing countries, they didn't like much of this stuff. And this first allowed many people on the other side, as it were, to find some support. I mean, some Latin American countries. I said, you know, we always thought that uh, this thing was crazy. And it's lovely to think that we are not completely crazy ourselves. So, so for, the, for those who haven't read the book, I mean, what was your basic thesis? My, I called it the dirigist dogma. That means exactly what people thought. If anything moves, you control it and regulate it. 
and that is based on you know plausible arguments. You could always make plausible arguments for this, but when you looked at all these arguments, they collapsed. I mean, essentially, you know, they said that you have perfect planners to control imperfect markets. Now the question is, well, planners had seen it. They're imperfect. Of course, it's imperfect markets versus imperfect planners. And all the incentives in planning are wrong. They can't get the information. So you have to then, what Hayek used to call the division of knowledge, not division, division of knowledge, which is individuals' habits. If you can use that, that would, of course, uh, give you much better outcomes. And I think that message, by and large, is now accepted. And but was this something that you that sort of struck you as a, in a thunderbolt, or was it just a sort of gradual dawning of understanding? No, when I came back from the planning commission, Ralph Harris is a very good friend at the IEA, so I told him about this thing. So he introduced me to Hayek. So I knew I met all these people. I mean, had long arguments, etc., about it. And then it, you know, the, I think there was someone at the IEA I've forgotten his name, who said, you know, all this stuff which you've been uh, we've been talking about. Why don't you write? a little Hobart paper, which is where they started. So I wrote this up. I don't ever thought anything would happen to come of it. And that was very well received. So that then, I mean, they just mushroomed because, you know, it's taken up by American presses, etc. And I think it really caught a mood. That's the point. This was a turning point in some sense. We would had 50, well, not not 50, but certainly since the 1950s is the Indian first year plan. 50 to about 80, you had this was the thing, but it was declining. There were a lot of people who found this. Um, so it caught a mood. And, and that, that actually sort of speaks to another theory of yours, which is that um, econo- there's a sort of crisis theory of economic yeah, liber- liberalisation, that people are only willing to do what it takes to galvanise, to, to galvanise their economies at the, at the point when they absolutely have no yeah, other exactly. choice. Exactly, staring at the abyss. And I think that works. I mean, if you look at all the liberalization, including the, the second world, Russia, China, etc., they have always resisted, resisted. They know what to do. I mean, people there, but none of them actually are willing to do anything until they really are staring at the abyss. And I think that is true. It's still true. But um, I mean, surely that applies more more widely to the uh, to developed nations. Oh, absolutely, well. absolutely. I mean, the, if you if you think of the Thatcher reforms. It is that winter of discontent, which I still remember, you know, we were stuck in a lift once for three hours because <laughs> it parked, there was a park cut and you couldn't even, because you didn't have mobiles in those days. So you had to depend upon, but that itself was linked to the horrible. So that, that was a crisis. And I think, you know, in some sense, she very sensibly used it. I mean, there are many people who can't use it. Venezuela now is a classic case. And there's been a crisis, but they, I don't know how it's going to end, but at some stage, I mean, they can't continue like that. So, how impressed have you been, sort of, throughout your career by, in, in, by, because we, we, we were talking about planning, but obviously um, <coughs> you get sort of planning within countries, but you also get the international bureauc- bureaucracy yeah. of, um, of development. Um, you, you, you rather wonderfully describe um, your sort of slightly uh, tormented time in the World Bank as like you know it was a it was like working in a medieval court where everyone is com- competing exactly. for the ear like, of the moment. I'm now watching the Game of Thrones, and the Game of Thrones <laughs> reminded me very much of the whole World Bank. People trying to do each other, they're different factions, they don't have territory in the same way. What do they do actually? They go around looking at the world. The international, you see, the trouble with all these international bureaucracies. Now, the World Bank, funnily enough, was a very good idea when it was set up, no question about it, because you know, developing countries didn't have access to markets. 
But then you always get some charismatic leader who wants to. So McNamara, he came here and after, you know, his Vietnam experience, he wanted to save the world. I was hired. He asked the uh, Africa department to get someone to study Kenya because he thought, he was very keen on Tanzania now, really, you know, this all this socialist stuff. And he's very anti-Kenya because dog eats dog, man eats dog. That was extraordinary. So he had, so Paul Collier and I went out to do a study at the, for the Africa group. And this was showing, you know, Kenya, Kenya done very well. And, and of course it didn't continue, but it did. And that was, he hated that. And I think they suppressed it. So we finally had to publish this an OUP book, uh, which I think is quite a, and this is sort of economic history of it. So he then set his heart on this poverty thing. But you know, he's a, he was an absolute planner and had Hollis Chatterley, and all they wanted to do is to find some top-down method of sort of doing it. It didn't work. That then was followed by this short interregnum where I was there helping Anne Kruger running the research program. Yeah, and you, and you built up the, yeah, the, the, the research capacity. And at that time also the policy thing switched towards, you know, they had all these, uh, what are they called, adjustment programs, which went for one way using crises to get these governments to do the right thing. But that then collapsed because the inertia of the system which is dependent upon them. I mean, of course, you know, some sort of dirigist policy, they all rebelled. And then Wolfenson came and he, by that time, partly the success of the adjustment program meant most of the third world had moved towards more liberal, liberal policy. So Wolfenson then came and no one wanted World Bank money, tied to all these stuff. So he then converted it essentially into a gigantic NGO social thing, women, gender, all this sort of stuff. And since then, it's been, it's, it's, you know, it's hopeless. I think that we shut down. I mean, there's no role anymore. And the latest chapter is the worst. I mean, there's tremendous dissent amongst the international civil servants there now. You see, the IMF, in fact, I describe it after, the, after Nixon closed the gold window, and it was really set up to manage the old uh, gold exchange system for the exchange rates. So it had no function. So since then I describe him like Pirandello's, you know, actors in search of an author. They're constantly finding some play. And they did quite well out of the first debt, debt crisis, third world crisis, and then the subsequent crises. But when you look at what they've been, what, what they've been advising and doing, much of it can be highly questioned. A lot of people have. And effectively, there's no reason for it to exist anymore. But isn't there a, an issue which, you, which, you, which India is a great example of, you know, that once a bureaucracy exists, it's reason for Very it. Very difficult. It, yes. You know, that's the thing. And that's why a crisis is important. Because in some sense, you know, politicians, when they're faced with this, are willing to take these difficult matters. So, which leads me to something I wanted to ask about. Do you think politicians generally do more harm than, than good? I mean, how, how sort of significant are they to the functioning of, of the economy? The economy. Well, I've always believed, I mean, it depends. Of course, you know, the travelers here, they're so, they come in so many different guys. Now, the travelers, once you've made a mess of things, well, you know, and you have, I know, very often the economists, you can find economists supporting any position. The economists sitting there, then, and the bureaucracy is sort of entrenched. Then you're in a position, then you really do need some politician 
who knows their stuff and is willing to take these on. A Thatcher figure rule. Yeah. On Moon Singh, and, and it was not similar. He was the person who was, took the, who uh, decided to sort of the industry to, to remove this. And the same thing was true of Teng Xiaoping. I mean, that's the other great good example. You know, the great crisis in China. He didn't know, I mean, didn't know any economics, but he just thought. And they actually, I think was, I was on that, I knew this. Zhang uh, Ziyang, he was a PM. And uh, he, we, we all, the group of us, and he asked us, he used to come and sit in the people's, whatever, the huge house. And he was very open, he really wanted to hear anything. Only one time, I remember that he refused to answer any questions. And they had this system of, how do I describe it, controlling migration by having people giving them cards. It's called the Hoku yeah. system, yes. that was it. Anyway, uh, Konai was at this, this meeting, Konai was there, and he was answering every question about you ask anything. So Konai asked him, when are you going to give up this Hoku system? He excused himself, said, go to the loo, he came back and never answered it. That's the only question he didn't answer, but otherwise. But he said at that stage, they were very open-minded and they were willing to learn, willing to learn this. The best book on this, I still think, is, uh, is uh, Ronald Coase and his Chinese author. They've written a very, very good book. And effectively what they did was, they let people, you know, these grassroots capitalist things were rising, and instead of squashing them as the Indians were done, many other people did it, they actually used those as models for liberalization. And that is a very important thing. But now, again, the politician is he's gone back. He's going back to exert control. He doesn't like this loss of control. So, what, so what, one of the themes of, you, of your career again is you know the, the, you you win the battle in sort of eighties and nineties. Pendulums. The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get the you know, but the, you know, people start to accept that markets know better than mandarins to, to use one of your phrases. But then you you say that the the, the forces of darkness reassert themselves in a new guise. Instead of sort of state planning, it becomes about regulation. Yeah. And that kind of then that then becomes the thing. That's that the next. That, yeah. That's the next beachhead, if you like, for all these dirigis. And that is happening, it's all around us now. I mean, developed and developing countries. Uh, I mean, the worst, most egregious of this, I'd be completely against, is, is Dodd-Frank. You see, I've been a supporter of the old, uh, what is it, the separation? Uh, Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall. And the point is, people, I mean, a lot of these ba- academics now, I'm completely against them, they keep saying, oh, Glass-Steagall didn't actually do, do, do anything. And effectively, you know, there was no need for it. But look, something which for 30 years, or more, more actually, 1916, this is 19, so nearly 50 years, had succeeded in avoiding financial crisis. And it's a very simple thing. And my, my thing is that you should just separate commercial. And the reason, because you've got deposit insurance. Mm. I mean, none of us are going to monitor, monitor our banks. So once you've got deposit insurance, what you need to do is to have commercial banks control, you know, these investment bankers had nothing there. And investment banks, should they, sh- they should just be partnerships because it's their money and so they can take whatever risks they like. And that is exactly the system which we had before this. So, so actually, now, now it's terrible. Now, this, what is this chair? Goldman Sachs, which is a perfectly fine partnership. It's now a public limited company. So, you know, it's passing off all these risks over the general public. It should never be allowed. And in fact, I was talking to um, 
Nigel Lawson, who was yeah, saying that he's he's, he's on yeah, my side on this yeah, one. Isn't yeah, but he was he, he was saying his um his sort of big regret. I mean, he he was saying that you know his. He, had, I mean, he was. He, 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 there, there was a sort of a decent regulatory system in place, in it, which yeah, was the then big bang. The, the big bang got it yeah. into effect. No, well, his argument was that there was actually a regulation system in place, which was then further weakened by uh, uh, by, by, by Labour, among other things. But also that, that his one regret is he never had the because there just been in Britain there was this sort of axiomatic separation between merchant yeah. banks and retail yeah. banks, and he never thought you he didn't realise that you might and need you, need law. you might need a law because the idea that these two yeah. things would ever end up in the same place the was, thing, yeah. Yeah, was so, no, I mean I remember these investment bankers going to the city, and uh, there's a apocryphal story of Neil Ferguson tells I've forgotten which 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 of his books. <laughs> But this is a banker every morning, investment banker, he used to come in at seven o'clock. And the only thing, and he, each day he assumed he was going to go bust that night. So you just sit there and look at whatever had been done previous day to make sure there's nothing there which would bring his fears too loud. Now, you know that, these people don't do this now. Once you've got this model hazard and you can let it pass things on. So that is a terrible mistake. But I think, I did know that Nigel felt that he should have put in a law. I still don't know the story behind the Big Bang. I must read something about that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, we've we've spoken mostly about sort of um, your history as a development economist, but you mentioned um, a few minutes ago the, um, the, the the IMF was set up to guarantee the yeah. fixed exchange rate system. One of your other contributions to to monetary theory uh, was that it, it, as early as 1980, you basically you argued for free floating exchange rates, yeah. which you know, uh, you know given that things like the ERM were still still in the future, was a was a controversial position, but that's now the oh, orthodoxy yeah. again. I can't see that way. Of course, all the, all the gold bugs are coming out and Bitcoin and all that, but I, I think that battle is not good. We're not going to go back to that. I think floating exchanges are there, but actually the trouble with the international monetary system now is that uh, 
Well, I, I know how to put it. You, you have people who believe that, that you can fiddle around with money in some sense, whichever way you like to put it. And that can actually have real consequences. And for good or bad, they want to fiddle around with it. Now, the great thing with Milton said, which people forget, the only effect fiddling on money is has on either inflation or deflation. The real effects come out, you get washed out. Now, that's been forgotten, so that you take the ECB, you take the Bank of England, even the Fed, they still think they're fiddling around with interest rates, etc. It's going, you know, through inflation, and it actually has real effects. Now, that, I think, is a very foolish position, because it, the, what you need for, for the real effects is, is fiscal policy. I mean, that's, those the, so that's micro, and this macro, you can affect, you can affect the level of uh, you know, booms and slumps, but beyond that, we can't do a damn thing. And that, that message is again severely regretted. So, so you'd say that the whole quantitative easing, ultra-low interest rates... is foolish. I mean, I can see that initially when you had this huge credit slump, then increasing the money supply to... I mean, you didn't want to happen what happened, and he was absolutely right to do it. But subsequently then using this fine-tuning by, you know, low interest rates, this is a complete mistake, it seems to me. I don't see how what this absolutely absurd. And the balance sheet of the Fed now, it's extraordinary. I can't remember how many trillions it is. I did an article, I think, in the Cato Journal recently, which uh, was it Cato Journal, what am I, what am I, business standard columns. And that, you know, the old story of booms and slumps, this is the Austrian one, meant that if, that effectively the natural rate of interest, goes back to Wixell, natural rate of interest was unknown, but that's the rate of interest at which you, both the real and monetary economies in equilibrium. Okay, now if the market rate of interest goes above that, okay, that means you'll get some slump, goes below it, you get a boom. And so essentially try and keep the market rate as close to this as, as you can. Okay, now what has happened, and this goes back to Greenspan, is that every time, let's say you, you, you the natural rate is fine, there's a big boom of some sort, then the downturn comes. Now, instead of letting the downturn go and then you go back to the side, people dampen that. So if you look at the figures, what you get then is a downward slide in natural rate, natural rate of interest. It fluctuates. It, and that is not actual. This is just purely because of this policy. Yes. It's as though every time someone yeah. someone, 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 someone catches a cold, you give them sort of yeah. steroids and... You yeah. know, you know, so they can't yeah. So and that is, that's exactly what we are now. We've got a decline. And people keep saying, oh, productivity has declined. But that is, it's not declined. It's just the monetary system has now led to a declining natural rate of interest. And some people tell me, I talk to somebody, they say, now, oh, maybe it's below zero. So you can't have a natural rate of interest below zero. It's nuts. But that's the story now, which is, and this is a big make foolish, the, fo the folly of this is that now you unwind these huge balance sheets. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I think that, like, this is going to lead to, I don't know what sort of crisis, but it could very, very well lead to a crisis again. Your two most recent books both took as their theme the decline or threats to classical liberalism. Yeah. Is that something that you see... Yeah, because I think this is a pendulum. You know, the best person in this is actually, what's his name, the Swedish economist, Heksha. And he wrote at a time when 
In fact, Diriji's governments were the norm, they were trying to control things, bring things under things, and to bring order. And then that could, in fact, that led to disorder which we see. And then you had the pendulum swinging back in the 19th century. Then we had it back again after the World Wars, it swung back to planning, Keynesianism, all this. So it swung back, but we could already see signs. I mean, I'm absolutely astonished. We've got a 1960s style trot, who is now, being, you know, ad adulation from the young people who should know better, and he could be peer. So there we are, here, this sensible country, the, the Thatcher done all this, the pendulum graduates is shifting back. Today I see on my newspapers that my old friend Oliver Letwin is arguing for raising spending and raising taxes. He wants taxes because he doesn't want the debts. Now that is absurd. I mean, there's been austerity. I've been any austerity if you look at the numbers. And this is one of the things which, which worries me, that's just this idea that if we're not going to do austerity now, over the next 10 years, all of the pressures on public spending are upwards because of aging population. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I mean... Well, I, I've always been... I mean, I wrote something years ago when I was at the World Bank. I was asked to do some, one of the World Development Reports. I think Martin, Martin Bulf was with me then. And just looking at the figures on pensions, this is 1980s. It is completely unviable. And I, I predicted this at that stage, this battle between the young and the old, given the demography, what have you. And that's exactly what you see now. So on a more optimistic note, your next book, which you, has, uh, has, has just been sent off to the, to the well, it's just, printers it's just in press, yeah. Yeah. Um, is about, uh, about war and power, and in particular, why we shouldn't write off America? Yes, just, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union and all this sort of stuff, uh, at that time, I, I, I wrote a book called In Praise of Empires, which, you know, which, which uh, was looking at this whole international system. But this latest one, this was prompted by, I was in China, I go, used to go there, last time I was there, I think 2012, and I was absolutely astonished. There was a huge meeting at Fudan University, which was both international relations, e economists, etc. And in one of the sessions, uh, the American a general, uh, sorry, a, a Chinese general who came up and the, his basic line was, he said, you know, why is, why are the Americans in the Pacific? Okay, this is, they've got no business to be here. They need to go back to the first island check, which is Hawaii, Guam, etc. So, so that someone asked, you know, someone asked him how they're going to have it. Who said we have to have a sharp, sharp, short war? And I, uh, I, uh, someone else came and said, last time someone thought that they'd do that in America, see what happened. Anyway, so that gave me the, you know, and then in looking at their behavior, you know, I've been going to China. And then with Z, there is no doubt in my mind that he, two things, he's gone back on all the liberalization. He really wants centralized control. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal shows that now they've got a surveillance system in which the satellites can take each person's picture, uh, match that water, whatever they know about mm -hmm. it, and actually know who the, the, someone goes through a red light within two minutes, or less than that, and the thing announces on the, 
loudspeakers with their name. You've just gone through this. You're not allowed to do it. So it's terrifying. I mean that. But the second thing is that he really does want to go back to the old Chinese, you know, with their idea of order, Middle Kingdom, the, the emperor is the one, and all the others are vassals. And I think that now is the aim. Now, Obama, to his credit, did recognize this. But then, you know, there was a damn squib, his, uh, what is the pivot to Asia? I'm just hoping that Trump, and so he matches, etc., will now take on China. But I, can't, I see it's unavoidable. I mean, the Indians, it's, they, there's not a single country around there. The only, only close friends who they can call are Pakistan and North Korea. Now, highly li- unlikely. And everyone else is ganging up against them. So this, is, this book is, is about uh, geopolitics as opposed yeah. to economics? Yeah. I mean, the economics is there because I think the origins of this, why the Chinese did this, was because they felt that they done very well during the Great Recession, the last Great Recession, and they think they're vague. But there's a lot about the relative economic strengths of these countries, and I take a very dim view of China's prospects, actually. And an optimistic one of America's? Yep. You see, all this stuff of productivity going on in Gordon's, he says, that's up the tree, completely up the tree. And there's nothing, there's nothing which has happened in America. I mean, they've... It's true, the distributional consequences are being very bad because of the A, globalization, but also this great... But they're going to come out of that, and they bump, bump, bump back. Nothing. You know, it's still it's the only place which is innovation, which is tremendous. Now, we don't show up in figures, but that thing's partly because productivity is mismeasured now in this new age. Because it doesn't take account of uh, online yeah, services. online stuff. And, you know, it's very difficult to see how you measure that. In some senses, we used to do with you know hard stuff. You can see inputs and outputs. Yeah, what is the input? What's the output? It's very difficult to measure. Anyway, so that that is something. Now, if you think, if you think around, the Chinese say, you know, we having patents, hundreds of patents, they're going to catch up with that. But these are all derivatives. Nothing new. I mean, look at the things which have happened in the last ten years. Google, and uh, what is this other one called? Uh, Zuckerberg, Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Amazon. And then, you know, they, so these are all, they're all, in America, they, they talk about China, they, China has copied a lot, lot of these, and why, why Alibaba sends their copies of this, but they don't have any innovation. And that goes back to the fundamental problem Z has. And that is, I can't think of any centrally planned economy, unless it's defense, I mean, you can build rockets against by stealing people's things, which has this innovative spirit, and you can't get that in a, on market economy. So, where would you sit on India then? Do you think it has India, more of that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, I think India now. I mean, it's it's still got a long way to go. Partly because this this backlog, if you like, of all this mountain stuff they've got to change. But I think Modi's got the right idea. Of course, the trouble with him is, you know, this is he's an autodidact. Now, trouble with autodidacts, I've always said, little learning is a dangerous thing, and you think you know much more than you do. And you're not willing to sort of, you know, for various reasons, you bit of inferiority. You don't. Now that's his trouble, and alas, the people he's got around him. I mean, one or two, of the economists have really outspoken. The people he got around him, uh, uh, they're they're hangers-on. They're flatterers. Now he's normally quite good at finding his out, but you know, he's in a hurry. He thinks that he can find a shortcut, shortcut of doing a way of doing this. I hope he's learned his lesson, and this hubris would lead to nemesis. But he's our only hope, because the other lot are absolutely hopeless. And I still think that 
if he can get his thing, the labor reforms, land, infrastructure, then India could be drawing a 10% for at least the next 20 years. So, spe speaking of India, um, you, we, we, just, we were discussing before uh, we turned on the, the recorder your 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 your, uh, your articles on the Raj, arguing that it's you know that actually it was you know it wasn't as, as awful for the Indian economy as has been painted. Um, which I, 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 a I'm interested to know the reaction to that in India, and b um, is that something that you, you know, throughout your career that you um, you quite enjoy picking fights? Well, uh, well, I, I mean, I suppose I you know I can call sorry, not picking fights so much as I hate cant. <laughs> That's the thing, and this and it, so I wrote a book actually on Indian because the Hindu equilibrium, which was which on which on which this is based, and looking at all the evidence, going back and seeing. And also trying to explain the caste system. Anyway, but that that meant that uh, when people keep coming out now, this latest chap, this Tharoor bloke, who's written this complete, you know, it's, it has picked up the same old themes. And somehow one has to be honest. I mean, you know, there are two sides, and and I mean, there were obviously bad things about the law. No one denies that. But on the other hand, attacking is for things which it did actually a great deal, amongst which 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 Manmohan mentioned. I mean, in you know, the English language, the common law and the beginnings of English education. I mean, these are all really important legacies in there, and you could deny that and go back to the national stuff. See, while going back to Modi, one of, the, one of my worries is, they, he's part of this old Hindu nationalist stuff. Now, on the one hand, they, they want to also, they want to deny, they want to deny any legitimacy of the Muslim rulers. Okay, okay, you can say, but as a result, they're also turning against, because they didn't in the old days, because all we like, they all learnt English, etc. They're also turning against the Raj, as with Tharoor, who's a, he's on the make, he obviously thinks he can do this. But why, where are they going back? They're going back to the old Hindu Raj, which is about, you know, Thar Now the point is, at that stage, true, I mean, you can find people who were, I mean, there was a chap who was a Machiavellian character called Cortillier, he wrote a book. But firstly, the provenance of all these is very dubious. And secondly, a lot of it is rubbish, scientifically. They think that we invented spaceships, we invented this, that, and the other. They find some Sanskrit words which to describe something like that. Now that is really, I think that is really bad. Because if they continue going down that road, then like China, I mean, you know, they, all the creativity, etc. will go. But let's hope not. I hope that's not lost. And that's a passing phase. Anyway, but it's it's a mixed picture again. But you, but you, but you were talking. About, I mean, <laughs> is there not an element of your own biography in this? Because I mean, you 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 yourself, you, your family was did extremely well under the Raj, and then in partition, yeah. you you found yourselves on the wrong side of the border, yes, and absolutely. Uh, and you know, and and, and basically yeah. lost lost everything. Absolutely, absolutely true, and that yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and uh, in some sense, yeah, it is. I was once, but you see, the funny thing is, my family, uh, my family is on both sides. That's my father's family. My mother's family were nationalists. My mother, during the 1930s, were hurling, you know, as part of Gandhi's movement, she was hurling rocks at the police and all this sort of stuff. And her brother, who actually went to jail, he then, I mean, they, they were Congress people, and he actually became mayor of Delhi, he was a minister in Nehru's government, etc. So in some sense, we were completely split there, so the family. Uh, but they then, I think after partition, in fact, you know, no one, I mean, that, that was it. 
one actress. But you know, but the Raj, Raj, I think, did influence both, both sides. So uh, finally, you—I mean, you—you you, you taught in, in California for, for a long time. I, mean, I, I, I think your your some of your children are now in. Well, well, my son, unfortunately, bipolar. So he's he's a good addict. He's not sits. He's in a rehab center in India. But my daughter's here. She's uh, she and we've got grandchildren. Uh, so they live here, and we we now. I'm a gypsy. I mean, people think, where do you live? And I say, you know, previously we had three houses: one here, one in Delhi and one in California. Then we, when we retired, I mean, I mean, think about California, it's just too far away from everyone, you know, and I'm wandering around. So I, I we saw an apartment there, and we just rent something for two months when we go there. And otherwise, we spend five months here and five months in Delhi. And, uh, but um, obviously, this sort of international character gives you a, a sort of unique perspective on the Brexit debate. I mean, are you quite... I, you know, I was, I wrote some columns, I will send them to you. I, 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 of course I voted for Brexit, but the reason, and I also voted in 75 for joining the Union. And the, and the what, like many other people who were pro-Europe then, we slowly learned that we'd been sold a bill of goods. Because what I was told is we're going to have free trade. I didn't realize that the single market is not free trade, it's a protectionist bloody block with all these rules and regulations. And the second, they said, no, it's not a federal project. The, my final thing was, which finally convinced this man, when the European Court of Justice was put above any British law, because one of the big differences between the continent and this is there are different legal standards and legal things based on rights. Yeah. Now that, I think, that meant a tremendous loss of sovereignty. Forget it. So this is not a, nothing. And that, of course, meant, you know, I mean, migration is that you can use it away. That's not the point. But this was so the Brexit debate now. I find it absolutely extraordinary. This bloody Hammond now is coming up and trying to sabotage the thing effectively. I think she's sacking because she lost the election, so you can't probably do anything. But she's really sacking because he's he's really off. But you know, even people. Well, I think Oliver is probably a Remainer. I don't think he would be. I think he'd be on Hammond's side. George Osborne, of course, is sitting in the standards, sort of shooting bombs and <laughs> bombs at everyone. But the Brexit debate, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, my, uh, the argument I made is that is effectively you're leaving, okay? So there are two things. You're going to get back your legal, legal rights. And as far as the economics is concerned, British Industrial go to unilateral free trade. There's nothing to discuss. I just... I told somebody, if you always, David goes there, he can, the chap can argue about money. I mean, you can have arguments about that. But you don't have to do anything. Just say, we're leaving. And we're leaving the, you know, the common market, all this sort of stuff. And we're going to unilateral free trade. You so no, no, tra- no, trade de- no specific bespoke trade no. deals? Just? No, just we're going to have free trade. And they put up tariff. I mean, what, 5 10%? The exchange rate fluctuates more than that by, within a year. So and, and all these people are squealing about the city, agriculture, etc. I mean, you just say, we, we are free traders. We are free trade. You don't want a free trade deal with us? Too bad. But I suppose which come, but that comes back to your point about regulation, I suppose, that the obstacle to that would be that, you know, the, the services, the standards and regulations and all. Where? In, in Europe? Yes. Yeah, but I mean, they got most of them. 
See, one, one of the great things she's doing in this great repeal. The, the, so, the, the, the great so, not actually repealing. But. Yes, exactly. So they keep it. That all you do is, if that's the only, the only thing, you just keep those standards for anything going to Europe. I mean, that's fine. So they can't complain about that. And if they put up tariffs, I mean, you can, you can do it in two ways. I would just forget about it. I mean, 10, 15% as many, be nice to them. But if they do, it does match it. But that is stupid. I mean, they're just starting a trade war. I mean, Joan Robinson, who was one of the most extreme dirigies you could imagine, she's for free trade, isn't it? And she made a marvelous remark, which I always remember. And she said, if some people are throwing rocks into their harbors, there's no reason why we should. And that's exactly right. And so, you, so you're, you're optimistic about Britain's prospects? Here. Oh, I, I, no, I, I mean, my, what I'm worried about is they'll do some screwed up deal where they won't actually get out and then have some long, I mean, this and then, and then Jeremy Corbyn gets in and... Uh, well, then, yeah, exactly, Jeremy Corbyn gets in and then we're back again to nationalise industries and all this sort of stuff. No, it's horrible. So, I, I, I mean, I just hope this woman sticks to her laws, lets David Davies and people do their thing, get out, and then you'll be fine. Professor Lal, thank you very much. And thank if you, you. like this, uh, we'll see you again next week. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.